0: Hello and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Today's guest is composer, performer, and installation artist Graham Leek, originally from Australia and currently based in the UK. Graham has carved a unique path for himself as an artist. His music is sometimes whimsical and makes great use of humor. He also often makes use of found sounds and designs his own sound sculptures for some of his work, in addition to the more or less traditional concert music. Trained as a percussionist, Graham has been a professional musician and composer for most of his career. In 2005, he co-created the Spaghetti Western Orchestra, a global touring theater and music show based on the film scores of Ennio Morricone. He's also been a music director and designer of some large-scale productions and public artworks, including a program called Raising the Roof for the Art Center in Melbourne that featured over 300 performers. Uh, he also created a giant musical wire fence in the Queensland desert of the Australian outback, so I hope we can talk about that project. And Graham is currently in the UK producing a large interactive sound installation called Listen, coming up this summer at the Watford Coliseum. Graham, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here, too.
0: Well, I'm really curious about this, uh, your current work, this big installation project, and I definitely want to talk about that. But I I always like to, here at the very top of the show, to kind of take a look back and, and think about some formative experience or reflect on some formative experience that you might have had. Uh, so, so take us back to some time perhaps early in your career or during your training? How did you get started?
1: Um, it, it's, a, it's interesting. Um, it, I, I sort of always knew that that I was a natural um, musician. I mean, I didn't realize I was a natural musician. I realized later that um, things that I felt were easy and that I enjoyed doing were the things that, that, that were to become my lifelong uh, work. Uh, my mother recalls, me talking to her about hearing the music in the cars when I was a little kid. I used to stop her in the street and say, did you hear that? Did you hear the, the cars playing that music? Uh, so I've, always, been a, I've ha- always had a little bit of a hyper, hypersensitive ear to environmental sounds and natural sounds. Um, I was attracted to drumming and percussion from the time that I was in primary school and uh, I ended up going to a music high school in Sydney, in Australia. The Sydney Conservatorium High School, which was associated with the, um, it was it was a small school of just 150 sort of um, kids from all over Sydney who who'd auditioned to get into this school, and um, was associated with the the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. So I had a, a good um, sort of solid high school training that was very steeped in with a lot of extracurricular activities in orchestra and and uh, band and and. Choirs and composition and all sorts of things. Um, I didn't do any tertiary study. I, I just left school and um, and and started freelance straight away. At that time in in the late seventies in Sydney, there was plenty of work around for percussion players and not many percussionists. Sampling hadn't been invented. I, I there was a lot of sessions and a lot of shows, but I would say that probably the the most formative experience for me was hearing some contemporary music on on a radio program when I was about 16 Um, I heard some It was a group called the Australian Contemporary Music Ensemble ACME and I heard a broadcast uh, of of some current new music by Australian composers being performed by this ensemble that was coming out of Melbourne I was living in Sydney at the time and um, I was really really I hadn't heard anything like that before, I was really, really impressed and and, uh, and excited by what I heard. And I actually wrote to them and said, uh, I just heard this music and I want to join your band. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to join, I'd love to play some of this music. And and um, years later, um, the players in, in that ensemble became my, my good friends and colleagues because I ended up playing a lot of new music with a lot of new music musicians. And 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 contemporary composers, and they recalled that when that letter arrived, they had a bit of a chuckle. Oh, here's this school kid writing to us to, to tell us that he wants to join the band. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, that's that's great. So and so, uh, when when did you make your way there and and sort of get connected with that group as as a professional?
1: I left school in uh, '78 and started working freelance, uh, and. I connected up with um, Carl Vine and Simon De Hahn in um, the following year, actually, in 79. They were, that that group, Acme, collapsed and um, out of the ashes of that group, they formed a new group called Flederman and that was a trio with, well, it was a duo, actually. It was Carl and Simon doing a whole lot of works and I went to some of their concerts and met them and um, then they managed to... Get, um, get a residency at the Queensland Conservatorium in 1981. So I, I left home and moved to Queensland to join Fladerman and we had a residency at the Queensland Conservatorium. It involved some teaching. I was 21 years old. Uh, it involved some teaching at the con, lots of concert making as a trio in Queensland and then we also used to get together with another three players uh, an additional flute cello and trombone to make up a sextet, and we did concerts in Sydney and Melbourne. And that group continued until, uh, until 1988, so a solid decade with the group Flademan.
0: Wow. And that's one of the tracks that you sent me, um, a piece by Carl Vine, who is a composer that I really had never heard of before, so I'm glad to have made this introduction. Uh, it's a piece called Miniature Three.
1: Yes, uh, I'd say that was um, that was a very uh, we were talking about we're talking about formative times and and seminal works. That was definitely one of those for me. Carl wrote that for us. Uh, he wrote it in the lounge room of my parents' house, actually, and um, uh, and and we were sort of blowing the ink dry. And as we were getting ready to do the first performance, it was and and that was the case with a lot of the Flademan repertoire. We commissioned uh, many many works. I think I. I premiered over a hundred works by Australian, living Australian composers through that time. And Miniature 3 was a real eye-opener for me in, in its uh, rhythmic, the, the the sort of play of rhythms and, um, and the interaction and, and the melody and the harmony. I love Carl's work. Interesting composer, and he was also um, heavily into electronics and computers. And this was at a time, you know, the Apple Mac hadn't arrived yet, and computer music at Princeton was was at a point where I think composers were were coding on a on a green screen and and taking things across campus and waiting two or three days before they heard the notes that they'd just made. So, you know, it was really in the pioneering days of of MIDI and computer music, and um, Carl was very much into analog synthesis and computer music and electronics, and I really learned a lot by hanging around with Carl.
0: Yeah, and so is um, is he still working? I mean, do you still keep in touch with him and...
1: Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, he's now the Artistic Director of Music Aviva of Australia, which is a concert organization in Sydney. Okay. And, he's st- and he's still composing as well. Uh, and he's still my go-to tech help. when I, <laughs> 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 I still ring him when, when I need a hand with something. He's a, he's a whiz.
0: So um, I guess I, I first discovered your music when uh, a friend of mine, a, another percussionist, her name is Bonnie Whiting, and she did all of her doctoral sort of research was on, or not all of it, but some of it was on, uh, speaking percussionist pieces. And so as part of that project, she made a sort of bibliography of a whole bunch of pieces. And, uh, I, I read her, I read that document and then she wrote an article in a, in a book that we were both published in, um, about speaking percussionist, pieces that her article was about that and uh anyway so I between reading that and looking at her research uh and looking at that bibliography I found all kinds of interesting pieces that I'd never heard of and and this name Graham Leak and this piece and now for the news and it sounded intriguing and that you know how when you go to the internet and you kind of go down the rabbit hole on the internet and so I ended up finding you and finding that piece and getting it and uh just had so much fun playing that piece um and uh, that was a relatively early well i guess a relatively early piece for you um and i heard your performance of it and anyway so that just made me really curious about your music and that's kind of how i discovered uh all of this other wonderful stuff that you do so uh can we maybe talk a little bit about that piece
1: yes um uh, and now for the news yeah uh it, it it was um sparked by uh i, I was i was driving around I, I i really hate commercial radio and i always um I, I used to play this game where i would always try and find something on the radio that was um that i'd never heard before i'd try and unearth stations that i didn't know existed and i particularly enjoyed doing that when i was driving and sydney had just um we just got a, a, an ethnic radio station run by um, SBS. It was an SBS station, Special Broadcasting Services, um, which runs uh, a TV station here as well as these radio stations. And they have different programs in different languages at each hour of the day. And I was driving and listening to the Vietnamese hour and really struck by the, uh, by the rhythm of the speech.
0: Yeah.
1: And I noticed that as I was driving along, if I just sort of kept a pulse going, uh, you know by just tapping on the on the steering wheel these these rhythms all snapped into focus in a relationship to that pulse <laughs> um, and then i experimented with different pulses i'd try faster and slower and it didn't matter which pulse you chose you could hear these the the rhythm in the voice really quite clearly and so um i just recorded some slabs of broadcast on a cassette player and um and set about transcribing them, and that's how the piece eventuated. And then, I, and then I recorded a, a sort of a click track pulse uh-huh. um, on a conga drum against the against the voices. Yeah. So th- that that's really how that piece happened. Yeah. It's
0: it's pretty low tech, you know, uh, piece, but it's just a magical and fun experience as a performer to get in touch with sort of the the musical rhythm of speech without being. Connected to the meaning of it. Hoa Kỳ lẫn Việt Cộng đều chưa đưa ra lịch trình cho việc định cư. Trong khi Hoa Kỳ gọi những người trong tại học tập là cựu đồng minh, thì Việt Cộng gọi là những kẻ mang tội ác chiến tranh. Thường phải đòn Hoa Kỳ nói rằng Hoa Kỳ không biết rõ hiện nay còn bao nhiêu người ở trong tại học tập. Tuy nhiên, họ nhận con số 10.000 làm con số để bắt đầu. Lê Mai còn nói rằng thống ODP Jordan hiệp quốc bảo trợ. Theo Liên hiệp quốc thì từ năm 75 đến nay đã có 1 triệu người rời khỏi Việt Nam, trong he thong odp quoc bao theo thi tu nam 75 đen nay co trieu nguoi khoi viet nam so đo co nguoi vuot I don't know if I told you this story but I, I played this piece at one of these uh, opening gala sort of concerts at, our, at the university for all the students. All the music, you know, the music faculty gather and we each play one piece or something. And so I I had just learned this piece and I'd only had it for maybe a couple of weeks. And um, I thought, "Ah, I'm going to give this a give this a go. And so anyway, I played it. Well, I didn't realize that I have an Asian student here and I didn't realize his ethnicity was Vietnamese. And so um, (laughs) after the, you know, I made some remark about uh, at the concert about, you know, it's wonderful to have played this piece and and work as i said the relationship between rhythm and tonality and melody without being burdened by meaning of what this text actually means because i don't speak vietnamese so anyway then i played the piece and then then the next day he had a lesson and he came in for his lesson he said by the way you know i'm vietnamese <laughs> I said no way, tell me what this piece what are they saying? And of course then, you know, he said, "Well, it's just this and that, you know, it was something about financial reports or something, very mundane sort of uh, information." Um
1: Yeah, it's not it's it's nothing special. Yeah, there. yeah. I I think there was something also about some troops um being withdrawn or something okay okay i I I don't remember uh, but i've I've never really bothered to find out what it you know the exact meaning of it because it doesn't really matter and and like you say i'd rather not know what they're talking about i'm listening to it as rhythms but i do wonder what i would how i would feel if i walked into a concert hall in vietnam and saw a vietnamese percussionist with an english you know an English tape of news playing yeah. along with it rhythmically it must be quite strange for a Vietnamese speaker for a Vietnamese person to actually experience <laughs> so, it,
0: yeah I know I agree and but it was so interesting how that piece how the uh, the voice does have this sort of very regular time you know and I don't I, I've never tried it with with English I don't know if we um, I suppose it depends on Who's speaking and how you're talking, whether you have a very regular pulse or not. But anyway, I just that's a really fascinating uh, experiment with uh, with rhythm and tonality as it relates to spoken word.
1: Yeah, uh, look, I'm sure I, 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 you know. Just listening to you speaking that answer right then, uh, putting a pulse to it, I'm sure it could be transcribed in exactly the same way, yeah. and English would have its own set of, uh, of sort of recurring rhythms and, and it wouldn't really matter who was saying it. Um, but I think the interesting thing about the Asian languages is the fact that they're so sing-song and the fact that pitch is so important to meaning. Uh, because I know that in Thai, for example, you know, there's one word that can be said about 12 different ways and sure. has 12 entirely different meanings according to whether you put the high tones. You know where you put the high and low tones in in the way you're saying it, and and I think that's why that that was also that drew me in because I found when I transcribed it, um, I I roughly transcribed the pitch as well. I, I sort of and then that played out onto a range of pitched drums. Yeah. Yeah. yeah là hai người Úc đầu tiên lên Cow ngọn của Chenluis cao 8800 thước. Cho biết hai người leo núi này tên là Tim McNay Snap và Rick Mortimer. Đây là hai người Úc đầu tiên lên tới ngọn của Chenluis cao 8800 thước. Cho biết hai người leo núi này tên là And uh, and, and I, re- I recalled that experience recently because I had to uh, I, I we traveled with my band The Spaghetti Western Orchestra. Uh, to mainland China, and we did some gigs over there. And I took it upon myself to learn a few words of Chinese to introduce a few things live on stage. And I I was doing exactly the same thing of um, of writing out these these uh, phrases as melodies, so mm-hmm. that I could learn, learn them and get the meaning correct. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, this might be—since you mentioned it, this might be a good pivot uh, to talk about that Spaghetti Western orchestra. Now, I have—I'm a huge film fan, and I've always loved those uh, Spaghetti Westerns, and I've always found Ennio Morricone's music to be such uh, a fabric of those movies, you know, Um, and we're talking about movies like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, uh, Once upon a time in the West is probably my favorite of of those uh, films, but anyway, I was totally charmed when I found your uh, your group, the Spaghetti Western Orchestra. So, tell me a little bit about uh, how you uh, formed this group and uh, and kind of the journey that that you went on with that.
1: Uh, that was interesting. I would I, I, moved to Melbourne in 1999, and I was sort of um, by that stage I'd, I, I'd I'd also moved into a more uh, uh a more original and uh and theatrical um state in in the pieces and things that I was making and and in the work that I was doing i I'd, I'd started to incorporate a lot of um uh theater and and the idea of um holding your per, holding presence as a performer in in some sort of character um and i'd and I'd been exploring the relationship of humor and music i'd, I'd Sort of broken away from the concert hall, and and I'd started doing my pieces actually in comedy clubs and in cabaret venues. When the the, it was a conversation between it with a friend of mine who'd also moved to Melbourne, David Hewitt, and I said, "What are you up to?" And he said, "I'm I'm thinking of putting a, a bit of a lounge band together to play some Morricone music." And the next day I met Patrick Cronin, who. Who went on to become a lifelong sort of um, collaborator and friend, but this was my first meeting with him. I said, "What do you, what are we getting up to?" And he said, "I'm thinking about putting a, a band together to play Morricone's music," <laughs> and um, and I'd had I'd had exactly that conversation the day before. Yeah. And so I broke at a meeting with with David and Patrick, and David had already found a bass player, Dan Witten, and the four of us um, got together to to try out this idea, this ridiculous idea that four <laughs> people could maybe play the big orchestral scores of baroque. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which was just sort of stupid. And um and and there was a lot of fun involved in that and we we um did a lot of sampling and and I used a cat and and triggered a uh, triggered a lot of beds and loops. There was never any we never played along with a backing track ever, but I did have fragments of stuff that um that I was triggering on the sampler. Anyway, the idea sort of worked and we we Started it out in little cafes, uh, and you mentioned two thousand and five in your intro. We'd actually started it in and around Melbourne in around two thousand and one as oh, a quartet.
0: Okay, okay.
1: But the reason two thousand and five is kind of uh, that's when we. By the time we got to two thousand and five, we'd taken it to Edinburgh. We'd added an addition. We'd had an additional player on synth uh, and keys, and we took it to the Edinburgh Festival. And that's when we met Clenis Henderson, and she's the producer of Stomp in in London and uh, she wanted to work with us and so we changed the show at that point and worked with a director and, um, and that's really the, the point at which we say that the the, the, the version of the show as it, as it stands now took off going back though, the the thing that was interesting, I think, in this this background story was um, we'd recorded a lot of the soundtracks live from the film and we became very interested in the audio of the film. If you listen to a film soundtrack without looking at the film, it's really quite evocative um particularly the the morricone's masterful kind of mix of everyday sounds and sound effects and dialogue mm-hmm. with the music yeah. i felt i felt as though his genius is that the soundtrack is one giant composition that seamlessly flows from dialogue through to sound effects to wind to footsteps to a music cue to gunshots to water sounds you know like they're just beautiful audio slabs of time and um we we snipped a few of those out and we said let's just do this on stage let's go from this cue via that that bit of dialogue and text and these sound effects to that next sound cue and um and so then we started uh Playing around with doing the sound effects live, and we then we investigated foley and the whole art of sound replacement in film, and the whole, uh, all of the tricks of that trade, and and um, and what goes on in the back room of the foley department. You know when they when they're doing the sound effects for a film, and so we started doing whole scenes. playing out whole scenes with, with dialogue and we do footsteps with a with a boot in a packet of cornflakes and i used to make the sound of wind by blowing up a rubber glove and 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 letting it whistle through my mouth up close to a microphone and we had a creaky door sound effect you know we i i took me ages to work that one out but um, <laughs> how did you do that one um eventually i soaked a a, a door hinge in vinegar for about 2 weeks <laughs> uh, until it was thoroughly rusted inside and out yeah and then attached that to two uh well a piece of a sheet of metal on one side and a sheet of wood on the other and it just it swung backwards and forwards and sounded like that sign f- from the beginning of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West when the guys are all sitting around at the train station waiting and there's a sign swinging in the wind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, that movie, yeah. that movie in particular, uh, such a careful sound design, you know, the... Uh, Unbelievable. You know, uh, so... I don't
1: think there's any dialogue in that for like 10 minutes at the beginning. No. It's all one beautiful soundtrack, and and most of it is just, uh, you know, just the, the natural sounds.
0: Yeah, wasn't there a windmill or something in that uh, yeah, that's as right. well at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, I Water, rem- drip,
1: th- water dripping on a hat. Yeah, and, yeah, the fly steps, that goes on the guy's the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah beautiful beautiful
0: so uh and is this still going on or are you still no,
1: sadly sadly the spaghetti western orchestra is no more um we we were very popular and we toured a lot in the uk and europe we did to do some touring in the states and in asia and uh and we always had you know good audiences but we just couldn't because we all lived in Australia, it was very hard to um, make ends meet. Uh, mm. We would have to, you know, if you take eight people out on the road and there's eight airs fairs from Australia and you're all staying, you know, you're all out the whole, we, we, we would have to tour for like eight weeks to kind of, for the tour to, to pay for itself. And um, we did it for many, many years and our tours always did pay for themselves but only just. And it just got a little bit too hard and um, and we all looked at each other and just decided that we'd had a great ride. We did some great gigs. I mean, we ended up doing a um, uh, the Jules Holland show in London and we also played a, a proms concert for the BBC at the Royal Albert Hall, which was unbelievable. It's looked like the best gig of my life. So we had a wonderful time with it, but we've um, we've hung up our spurs. Uh,
0: well, I'm sorry to hear that. Are there? Yeah. I know there's a presence on YouTube, some clips and things that people can see, and uh, I suppose they can read more about all of this that we're talking about on your website, uh, yes. GrahamLeak.com. That's G-R-A-E-M-E, and then L-E-A-K.com. Uh, is there, are there any other commercially available recordings of the Spaghetti Western group or did you have, how, like, how uh, did you deal with the copyright of, of using Morricone's music? Did you ever run into issues with that or? Oh
1: no, we did all that. We did that all completely above board. I mean, uh, uh, we paid our dues to Mr. Morricone, so he, he, he got his checks from us. Um, there was, there was only a couple of moments in the show that we, uh, were able to say that we'd composed, and the rest were all his compositions, even mm-hmm. though we, they were our arrangements. Um, and we never met him, and, uh, you know, we never kind of crossed paths, which was a bit sad for me because I was really hoping that one day we would. My dream was that one day, you know, Clint Eastwood would come and guest with us and Morricone would walk on and conduct us. But um... <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever,
0: you didn't, didn't ever do any of the shows in the States?
1: uh we did do some touring in the states but okay. we found it difficult to 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 get a toehold over there It's it's very very tough market yeah. uh the, the states it's a whole other thing and and from what i can gather groups like ours you really have to do the first few years touring with your own funding you know what i mean <laughs> like you've really got to kind of yeah. be able to afford to pay pay for your own way through to get you to be able to do it so um we we were you know we we fell into a little bit of a grey area. We were all in costume. We had a set. We had lights. We had props. You could say this was a, a theatre show, but it certainly wasn't a commercial theatre show. It was, <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we, we experimented with different venues and we, after a few years of trying the show out in different venues, we decided that what we were is a concert. This show is a concert. It's a concert with a lot of theatrical extras and a lot of surprises that people that normally go to a concert wouldn't expect. But essentially, it was a concert. Um, whenever we did do a sit down show, which we did, we sat down in in theatres for a month here, six weeks there, two weeks there. It never really took off. Hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't. It it just didn't have the right ingredients to settle into a theatre run like that. Yeah. But it worked really well when we came and did one or two bigger gigs and so um in fact in in 2012 we did a 32 show 32 city tour of the uk wow (laughs) we were doing four or five shows a week with that gig and uh, it was great fun we had a fantastic time
0: oh i I can only imagine it looks like a lot of fun so i'm i'm sorry i didn't ever get to see that uh see it live it it looks there is uh, fun.
1: There's still a Facebook page floating around, and I'm always surprised because it keeps getting new likes and new uh, comments and messages. And there's some lovely, uh, there's some lovely warmth from the fans there. You know that yeah. we really we built quite a fan base, and um, and they're very sad to see us go. Yeah. Uh, and and so that's really quite lovely to be able to go there and have a look at that.
0: Great. Um, I wanted to ask you. A little bit about um well with we so many things here we still haven't talked about your installation uh the thing that you're working on now uh so maybe we should talk a little bit about that tell tell me about this thing that you're designing this listen or perhaps it's already been showing somewhere is that right am i reading that right
1: uh yeah it's um well um i moved to the uk in 2013 and um uh one of the things about my career is uh I would, I would say that um, I'm partially a product of the Australian creative environment. Uh, I'm also partially a product of my own kind of dreamings about what an artist can be. Um, but one of the things that I realised fairly early in my career in Australia is that the, the scene in any one particular area, if you were, for example, a freelance classical player, and you just played contemporary music, or if you were a jazz player, or if you uh, if you just wanted to be a concert recitalist, um, there's not a big enough scene really in Australia to sustain an artist in a in a fairly single and focused area like that. And I did attempt to train myself as a concert marimbist. In 1985 I went to New York for six months and I put in the eight, ten hours a day on the marimba and I also took timpani and snare drum lessons with some great players over there. Um, but when I came back to Australia, uh, I, I, well it was a combination of a few things. Really there wasn't enough of an in, of of an active environment there's not enough population there you know we've only got about 23 24 million people spread over an area the size of Canada um, and so there's not the kind of um, there's big distances between the major cities and there's not the kind of rural networks that you have in a lot of other places mm-hmm. um, and i and and personally i've always been interested in other things I, I, I so i got back from america and i'm trying to you know i'm trying to work on my marimba I, I, I keep wandering over and playing with electronics and playing with computer music, and I'm in my in my shed building something and uh, and then I'm work, manipulating images. I love working with images and and it was about 1989 I actually said to myself, "You know what? Uh, I, I think that I can evolve a practice which embraces all of these things instead of beating myself up and saying, "Oh, you shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing your other work." This is your work, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and I and I just got to this, and 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 I got to this point where I said, This is what I do, and and then I set about kind of creating a new body of work between about 89 and 93 that really took all of these things on board. And um, and one of those things is making instruments and making sounds. I, I, I was really interested in bits of string and. Um, and vibrate like i love Berenbau and i wanted to make Berenbau but it didn't look like anything that came out of an urban environment It looks like a an instrument from the from the jungle you know right and and i wanted to make instruments that referenced my urban environment and so um... i started to treat the hardware store and the and the rubbish dump as my jungle and assembling instruments and found sounds was a big part of my work and it always has been. And, I, and I, for example, I, I, in ninety, I think it was about ninety three, I put together a group called the Graham String Quartet, and we had um, broomsticks with tin can resonators and a single string on them, from bass through to soprano, and and you, and you stretch the string to play the note rather than fret it. So it's the, the whole instrument set up in a way that you can just use tension to get the notes. And um, uh, unfortunately, that that Group was around at exactly this time that stomp came around, and we were doing a fair bit of stomping as well, with, with the broomsticks and the tin cans.
0: And sort of speaking too, I mean, I love yeah. those. I love that one piece that you have on your website. Uh, I've listened to that several times, and there's also some sort of spoken te- and uh, sort of humor, and it's it's just really interesting sort of theatrical performance with these instruments.
1: Yeah, uh, unfortunately they you know they they did sound a little bit like a, a group of cats being strangled <laughs> because the um, the intonation on them was almost it was almost impossible for four it was hard enough with one yeah. to fi- to find the pitches but with four of us trying to find those pitches and absolutely no reference it really <laughs> it stretched out, <laughs> stretched our skills but no it was good fun. This this thing of this thing that I've always done of, of making sounds. I mean, another big piece of mine um, that sort of took me into the comedy circuit was a piece called um, the Briefcase, uh, which I I made in Sydney in about 1989, and I took it to Melbourne and I got gigs with it um, at, at a comedy venue, and it was a guy who came on stage with a briefcase and the table was amplified. There was an amplified surface on the under the feet and I had taps on my shoes and I had a little I had glasses with two condenser mics on each wing of the glasses that amplified my face (laughs) and I used to do this kind of sort of facial thing and I was scratching my face with a credit card and and the act consisted of this sort of eccentric office worker unpacking his bag jamming out on the contents of his table uh, with staplers and and stationery and then packing it all up and and leaving the stage and I, and I used to do that piece to drunk Friday night crowds you know um, <laughs> that were all yelling abuse at me and when I walked on stage they'd literally be yelling abuse at me and i didn't there was no language in the in that piece and I used to just sit down and start that piece and i it was like I was like the violin you know that calmed the rate the the rabbit beast they'd all they'd all be quiet, they'd all listen and then they'd all go crazy and just they loved that, that, that like they, the, the piece really worked and it really worked in the context of a variety comedy program because it brought the whole place to a sort of a stillness level which you don't usually get in a comedy night, you know. Right, right. There was, the, there was this moment... In in the in in my piece where I brought them all down and there was a hush and I was doing some really quiet little things at the start of that piece and that was a very handy thing to have in the context of the the whole night of comedy. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I. I um... I'm sorry, I really wandered off the topic there, but look, no. that's all back. That's all background as to why I'm now finding myself creating installation pieces that are interactive and sonic and that engage with the public. And that's what this Listen Project is all about.
0: Oh, well, uh, since you brought up this other uh, topic, I, I sort of am, am interested in in humor and music and how and why it works. When I heard your piece, uh, what's the name of that piece? I Love Jazz, <laughs> Solo yeah. Marimba and Voice, just hilarious. But it's, you know, in the context of, of where it is, you know. Uh, and so I imagine this briefcase piece to be... Um, just you know really great in that in that context of being at a comedy thing I've always felt kind of like th- the sort of three areas like punk rock uh, stand-up comedy and contemporary music I think there are a lot of if we, if we made a Venn diagram, you know, or something with, cons- like, you know, connecting circles or something, I think you would see a lot of commonality between those three practices, you know, putting well, together. Well, I,
1: a... I think it's all about, it's about the performance aspects, isn't it? And um, yeah. uh, I, I have to say, my interest in, in comedy, I was more drawn to the visual, sort of, I was, I was very drawn to Jacques Tati. Uh, and and I love all the Monsieur Hulot films, and um, in particular, Playtime um, has a scene in it where he's waiting in a uh, in a glassed sort of um, marble floored waiting room in an office building, and he does a, he does a routine with a briefcase in that, which is absolutely beautiful, and that was the direct inspiration for my briefcase piece. Like, mm. um, I definitely. You know, I, I gave myself permission a long time ago to copy things. I, you know, I used to I used to see someone doing something and say, oh, "I wish I could do that." I, I wish I'd thought of that, and I wish I could do that. And then I realised that you can, because if you copy someone else's work, not directly and not in a rip off way, but if you use that as an inspiration and start a starting point, you you know you can um, do things and find your own voice in that so i I spent a lot of time watching Jacques Tati. I also love Buster Keaton. oh yeah and and the visual his his especially his um deadpan kind of motionless face I just yeah. thought was brilliant and i and I took that on in my comedy character that I used to have. um and so yeah I, 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 my reason for using those uh, and and I was also really interested in difficult contemporary music and improvised music that you normally play to people and they don't want to you know they don't really engage with it too much I played many many years concerts to the same 20 or 30 devotees of the art uh, who would come along to listen to the difficult music and so I became interested in the idea of bringing those two things together because if an audience relaxes and actually laughs and then it changes everything in the in the environment of the of the event. You can then take them places that you wouldn't have been able to take them if this was a really serious event and you know really kind of um highbrow and difficult. but you can still go to those places um and 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 I just I found that those two things worked really well,
0: yeah, you know I heard a interview one time with Steve Martin, and he was talking about. Coming up with his, uh, you know, writing his routines, his comedy show. Uh, I guess this was back in the seventies. Mm, genius. Uh, it, genius. And one yeah. of the things that he said, which is like a, a totally, uh, you know, a light bulb just went off in my brain, was he said, you know, have you know how you. Um, you tell a story to someone and you say, you know, and it's, it's really funny story to you. And it was funny at the time. And you say, well, you had to be there. You know, you had, you just had to be there. It's not funny after the fact, you know, and you're, you're sort of relating that story to someone else and it's okay. I could see how that could be funny. He said that was his whole idea was making comedy that you had to be there for. You might, you know, and I just like yeah. this whole light bulb just went off and said, oh, wow, we should, that's how that's how I want to be making music for you had to be there for it. You know, it, it transcends yeah. Yeah. being able to talk about it later. You just had to be in the moment. You had to be there for it.
1: Absolutely. And that comes down to the idea of, a, of an event, of an assembly of people in, all in the one place at the one time people who've travelled to be there, all the preparation and all the thought that's gone in, the production, the, 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 the creation, the practice. I'm very interested in those things, I love live events, I love the idea that concert, the word concert is sort of the meaning for me is, is it's a conduit, it's a conduit that brings all of these streams together that are disparate and disconnected and they all flow at the one time and in the one place for, for a time-based event. And um, and I think it's a great privilege as a performer to uh, to be in control of that. Um, I'm I'm very interested in the idea of what, you know when does an event start? I mean, if you and I had a conversation now about hey let's do something in Austin, Texas in 2017, um, it probably started right there and then when you know when we first mentioned it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there's this sort of conception and gestation and birth thing that goes on in events as well. Yeah. Um, I love live events. I, I think they've been watered down terribly. Um, the the latest developments in, you know, projection and digital and I think everything's become very over-technologised and way too complicated. I, I miss the old scenic world of the theatre and, I, you know, so much theatre now is projection. And I also get a little bit depressed at the number of of acts that are using backing tracks now because... I just don't agree with the idea that a live event should be a karaoke event, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see I don't see why every band out there needs to have a bunch of tracks on a on a computer playing somewhere that they all have to become slave to and that that, that song with that backing track will always be exactly the same length. And it'll always split the focus of the musicians. They can't fully immerse themselves in that song because half of their focus has to go towards staying in time with the machine because the machine's not going to bend for them. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, so those, those are the things that I, that I am concerned with. And, and in my work, I like to strip away all that stuff and get back to the really simple things and uh, have fun and hear things in a new way and that's what this listen project is is all about. Um, I've, I've managed to um, I, I did a I did a version of it in 2011 in uh, Melbourne at the Melbourne Recital Centre or was it 2012? It might have been January 2012 um, where I pulled together a few uh, big sound pieces. I, I had um, an, an aerodrome, I, I had a whole lot of, of flying toys that made sounds had this crazy drum machine that I'd made that was um, ran on a sewing machine motor with these sticks flying around that, on on like on wheels and and pulleys uh, that played drums that I played along with. I had um, another thing that I've been chasing for years: the sound of dripping water, uh, which I love. I love the melodies that dripping water plays, and I've come up with a, a nice rig that um, that allows that to be heard in a way that you wouldn't hear it if you just sort of walk past it, but um, and then, and so I'm bringing all of those pieces together for this event in Watford in June, uh, in, in the uh, Watford Coliseum, which is a, a venue um, that's an old sort of um, art deco building. And it's, it's, a, it's like an old town hall and it's had a good tradition of, um, you know, of, of classical concerts and rock concerts. They have wrestling there. I went to a roller disco there the other night. It's a really kind of community space. But most people have that relationship to the venue where they go there, they buy their ticket, they walk in, they sit down, they see the show, they buy a drink, they go home. And what we're doing in Listen is we're turning that inside out. We're not using the main space. We're filling the corridors and the stairwells and the ticket box and the carpet with performers. I'm asking performers to do 15-minute sets and they'll be rotating. They'll, they'll, they'll go from place to place. there will be parallel performances. Um, uh it, we're going to like it'll be like a carnival, yeah the, sounds doors like... of, the doors of the building will be open, you'll walk in and you might hear three or four things going on at once, a bit like the John Cage music circus That's
0: exactly what I was going to say it sounds a lot like a cage music circus, so
1: yeah yeah it is and yeah. and this is something that I did in that other piece you mentioned raising the roof um and that 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 was a show that involved um hundreds of musicians and singers and we did the same thing there, we, we had them all active in the foyers of the concert hall in lots of different locations all at once so the audience arrived uh, and there was this carnival going on. And I'm doing that and then I'm also mixing in some new uh, big pieces that I'm making. I'm turning my uh, drum machine from, from, an, from a sewing machine driven one to hand cranked for the, for the people to play it themselves. Um, I've built an amplified sound walk, uh, which is just a big row of different materials that are all amplified. There's there's a PA speaker pointing straight at it, so you walk on it and listen to the sound of your own footsteps on, on gravel and on timber and on ceramics and some mm. crunchy leaves. <laughs> mm. uh, lots of other things as well. It's and the um, the dripper later, which is the 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 instrument that you listen to the dripping water. I'm going to actually have that outside the building, so it'll be um, it'll be listening to the traffic as well, Uh, but all of the traffic sound will be converted by some big tubes that are pointing at the drip with microphones in them to drones and I'll pump that into one of the stairwells. So the whole place is going to be sort of just buzzing with sound and people can wander around and this is all happening at, at the beginning of July for about five days. That's,
0: that sounds terrific. It, this whole idea of making sort of installations or public art uh, has been something that in your work for a while now, I, I guess. And I'm, I'm curious to know about uh, one, one of those other ones that I mentioned in the intro, this giant wire fence that you developed. So maybe you could talk about that briefly, but also just how does one sort of like, how did you make the transition from... You know, I I know you talked about sort of the the impetus for doing so, but how does one actually do do it? You know, make the transition from being a musician and composer primarily to then making these installations. I mean, how do you get how do you get the opportunities to to do that?
1: Good question, John. Um, And and um, it's it's something that you need to believe in. Uh, uh and be willing to invest in um and it might cost you you know it might cost you a fair bit one thing is you need time um you, you can't be you can't obviously if you're working all of your time to pay your rent in whatever job um yeah it might be a music job it might be that you you know you might be teaching or you might have an orchestra gig or or you might be doing sessions or whatever but if you've got some dream in the back of your head, I, I hate that. I don't want to say that. Yes, <laughs> I've got a dream. But, um, you know, if you've got some idea in your head that you think you could do,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you've got to carve out the time and the space to investigate it. And you need a lot of time. You know, you need free days and, and, and with nothing else to do. Um, I, I've always made that a priority and even when i raised a family and my kids were little you know i i realized then that um it was pretty full time taking taking care of getting enough money and and all the rest of it but the, so what i i just didn't have much sleep for a few years yeah. i used to use i used to use the kind of um 11 pm to 3 4 a.m hours as my time when that was quiet and i could focus on things there so you, yeah, you have to have time, and you have to keep your expenses low, so that you know, so that you, and and then when you earn money, you have to earn as as many dollars per hour as you can, so that you you can fund your other activities, and then you you've just got to make the work, you know, you have to make it, and people have to see it, um, and it has to be the best you can do. So you make work, and you get it out there for people to see, and um, if you make good work. People will get interested in it and things will happen. And work will always be good if you devote yourself to it. You know, yeah. it has to be. It doesn't matter what it is. Everyone can make something good if they uh, devote their time and attention to it, I believe.
0: Wonderful advice. You know, I usually close these podcasts by asking about, you know, advice for living and sustaining a creative life or creative practice. And I, I think you just answered that for us. <laughs> I hope so. So. You sent me a number of tracks just for sort of illustration and to use in the show. And one of the th- uh, ones that really captured my imagination was this piece called First Lesson. What, what is that piece
1: about? Um, that was a piece that a friend of mine, uh, her 50th birthday was coming up. And her partner came to me and said, I want to commission you to make something for Karen's birthday. Uh, I want you to go into the studio you know, for a week, and create a track for her for, that I can give to her as a surprise for her birthday, um, and uh, and so that's where that piece came from. I, I'd I'd had um, I'd been experimenting a lot with the string cans, and I had uh, I'd been experimenting a lot with the water. I was I'd found this beautiful old vinyl record of um, to learn Vietnamese, and. Um, and I just sort of pulled things together, it was a very open ended brief to create that track and um, and I also included some recordings of, uh, the whole thing was really quite unconscious, there was no real plan to it but um, the way it shaped up was it sort of was about a contrast in language, uh, the, um, the sound of the Winton council radio was something that I'd collected. One of the things I do is I collect audio as I go along. I'm always grabbing samples of the environments that I'm in and, um, and I had a council truck when I built the Winton fence and I used to leave the radio on and leave my tape recorder running because I loved the voices and what they were saying. So there was this kind of mix of the Vietnamese um, instruction vinyl and the Winton radio. Mixed with all of my own instruments that I'd created, including an amplified cactus and a string can and and uh, and dripping water and stuff.
0: Conversophone, first lesson. Bar white. Gold green. Tên tôi là John Brown That that one really captured my imagination. For you know, I just really enjoyed that uh, that piece of all the ones that you uh, sent. That one really hit a yeah, struck on something for me. I, I'm not sure I could put my finger on exactly what it was, but it it spoke to me in some way. So I wanted to oh, lovely. Find Thank out you. about that. Thank
1: you. I enjoyed that. that. Yeah, good one.
0: So uh, I guess to close, do you do, would you have any th- other thoughts or anything else uh, here in the in the last few minutes?
1: no I, I, I you know there's so many things that um, uh, could be relevant at this point I, I I guess the the one thing that I think we all should be very careful of at the moment is the impact of um, of uh, the digitization of music and the availability of of audio as uh, you know as numbers on computers and the fact that you know, we don't have to save up to buy a record anymore and we don't have to borrow cassettes or borrow vinyl from our friends and or listen to the radio. You can just basically type in anything and find anything. I think that's actually quite overwhelming. You know, the entire planet's musical output is available to every single person on the planet at the press of a button in a matter of nanoseconds. Um, that sort of is a big game changer as far as I'm concerned and I think in a bit the same way that... Um, that cinema took a hit when video came online, and uh, and and everyone was saying this is the death of cinema, and um, and then you know people stayed away from the from the cinema for a while, and they were staying at home watching TV and playing with their video recorders. But I think that 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 relationship has now settled down, and the two actually complement each other beautifully. Mm-hmm. I think we're in that stage now where. The commodification of music has has devalued it. Um, everyone expects to get music for free now and you can get just about everything you want for free. So that has changed the economics, you know, really uh, big time. Um, and I think, you know, we just need to be wary of that and I do my best to try and ignore that and just keep doing what I think is 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 interesting. And, uh, and and that's, that's what I would hope other people find the time and space to do as well.
0: Graham, thank you so much for being on the show today. As I mentioned, people can find you and your work on your website, grahamleak.com. I'll make sure and put a link uh, in the show notes as I add it to the website. But thanks so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today.
1: That's great, John. Thank you very much. And you've inspired me to go and find a. Uh, I'm going to find a short clip of the briefcase and get it on my site as a sort of a little historic moment. <laughs> great. We'll look for that. All right. Thanks. Uh, cheers. Thanks, John.
0: And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream: Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website john-lane.com and follow the show on Facebook simply search for Standing in the Stream thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music you can find him online at dclaymusic.com I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives thanks for listening